0: Friends, colleagues, and information technologists, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to introduce to you Matt Smith. Matt, welcome to
1: the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, happy
0: ah, to be here. Fantastic, we're really excited to get into it. We've been uh, chatting off air just before we got started and, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited for where we're going because I know there's gonna be a lot to, a lot to cover. So uh, we may as well kick it right off. Matt, what do you do?
1: Uh, I am the IT manager here in the Department of Psychology here at the wonderful University of British Columbia in the Vancouver campus. And uh, yeah, we provide IT support for the Department of Psychology, it's fairly (laughs) (laughs) self-explanatory.
0: So Matt, what exactly is, just to really layman terms for us here, what exactly is information technology?
1: Yeah, I guess information technology is the use of any infrastructure or platform that is provided. By technology. <laughs> sure, yeah. So anything
0: anything hooked up to the, you know, anything digital, basically. Is that a fair kind of...
1: Yeah, I think so. It's really a gray area because there's hardware and there's software and it's all considered IT. Right. Okay. And, you know, you have anything. I would even consider, you know, your old school dial-up phones to be IT <laughs> in, in some sense
2: yeah like at a certain level you're almost like a technician in some way because you also have to fix the hardware like a printer you'd have to diagnose what a broken printer looks like
1: yeah absolutely and we even see uh quite a few technologists that have backgrounds in mechanics yeah so perhaps they you know they grew up with a heavy interest in, in automobiles and because of that hands-on aspect that's what they developed their their passion in mm-hmm. and it led them to want to work on uh you know uh, electronic hardware yeah which is you know, makes basically sense the, the basis yeah. of, of IT yeah.
2: yeah the reason why we're having you on today Matt obviously is because we first off you saved my ass a million times <laughs> in the three years that I've been doing research <laughs> at UBC but we know that you have a, you play a huge role in research and so this is something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that IT people are huge have huge impacts on day-to-day research implications uh, for me it's been a huge <laughs> email has been the biggest <laughs> issue in my life that without the IT without you and all the people in the IT department I've been completely pooched uh but there's so many other things that you guys do so you're coming on to talk about your your role in research today right
1: yeah and i think um you know a good technologist is kind of like a good plumber in that you're not aware of the work they do unless it's bad <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's so true <laughs> speaking of that actually i have huge issues plumbing in my right now <laughs> so, <on it. laughs> i'm very well aware of that
1: <laughs> so i think that's why you know it's interesting you mentioned email yeah because that's probably one of the most problematic services in my opinion it tends it's very user facing it's something that folks use all the time and as such it's it's uh requires a lot of resources to keep going Mm -hmm. uh and it's prone to errors
2: right and that makes sense that it's the one thing that we like that we use so frequently that we would know if there's a problem with it right away absolutely right so that's probably why that's the like predominant issue that comes up with it is because we rely so heavily on it and then we don't realize other things aren't working but because we just don't use them as much
1: and most it folks hate supporting email services <laughs> <laughs> i don't blame them <laughs> uh, there are some that are very good at it uh, and they enjoy doing it but i would say it's few and far between and ultimately that's why you'll you'll see that there's a real push to centralize email services as much as possible and in fact i know many folks at ubc are arguing for getting out of the email business altogether and moving that to a server uh, you know to a service such as microsoft azure or gmail and a lot of universities have moved to uh, you know gmail's uh, business equivalent, which is G Apps, Google mm-hmm. Apps. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool.
0: I didn't know that. Actually, that's kind of a. It's yeah. an interesting way of outsourcing that that need to, to somebody else who can handle it, and you know. It's it, just so intensive. It. it
1: requires yeah. really excellent hardware. You need folks that are. Very knowledgeable with regards to load balancing. Uh, you need very you know top end. Uh, what in the states they would call systems engineers. Uh, engineer is a protected title here in Canada, so we just call them systems administrators. <laughs> oh, we've already learned something. I didn't know that. That's yeah, hard. yeah, but it's uh it's hard work, and yeah. my hat's off to those guys. <laughs> um, but again, yeah, it's it's uh, something that's user facing. Everybody complains about. When I want run into anyone, uh, either part of the UBC community or even you know, casually in other venues in town and you bring up that you're an IT guy, 50% of the time they're going to complain about their email service <laughs> and ask you if you have any opinion on what could be done to fix it.
0: Just burn it down. <laughs> yeah. Just take a match to it.
2: For me, Matt, I'm thinking, obviously I can't really say too much. I'm, I'm t- turning 26 this year. But, I mean, the, the amount of technology that we use today in research is very different than what we used 20 years ago, right? So an IT probably had a very different role 20 years ago <laughs> when I was being born, uh, when we were doing pen and paper. Now we have the, this global like ability to just assess participants from all across the world, and, and technology plays such a huge role in it. I'm, I'm actually quite surprised that IT is not like part and parcel with the researchers already. Do you think, this is kind of what we're gonna be talking about today, I think, is just the role that you guys might play in the future and now uh, with researchers. So do you wanna start talking a little bit about what you think, what you envision that well,
1: it's, like? it's interesting you brought up kind of the history of IT as being more, manual mm. uh, with how you know data is being calculated, stored, accessed, et cetera. The room that our team operates out of here is called Stores, mm-hmm. over here in the, in the back near the loading docks so of the Kenny building on uh, the Vancouver campus. And it's called Stores because it previously used to be a shop. And we had a stores keeper there uh, that there was all sorts of equipment in there. There was a lathe, there was a mill, there were fabrication utilities, because that's what the labs needed at the time you couldn't order certain supplies or certain connectors or uh, order ready to go operand chambers for, you know, doing any sort of animal research or right. behavioral research or you know different apparatuses uh, needed to be manually created. Yeah. And that's what the department provided. Yeah. And so they had a stores keeper and then you've seen that evolve over time and now we have an IT help desk there. Yeah. So I think for me, that's indicative of the direction that we're headed. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have, labs that have always used computing resources to calculate their data. Lawrence Ward's lab is one of them. He used to use a giant mainframe where he would use uh, Fortran code to basically compute EEG data. And the barrier to entry was so high, he was one of the only folks in the whole building that knew how to do it. So I would say what's happening is the languages, like with regards to computer science, like computer languages are becoming easier to grasp it's being taught more widely Mm. you have interpretive languages which are basically simplified languages that create another language that runs (laughs) in the background and you're just seeing more and more facilitation for this type of work to be easier
0: right so we're moving away from from that really like old school mechanic kind of stuff although not to suggest that that's not still relevant but we're moving away from that into a lot more um you know coding uh sort of general language kind of issues is kind of what I'm gathering.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing a huge rise in the use of programming languages to empower research. So mm-hmm. now you're seeing grad students, researchers, scientists wanting to take more control over what type of stimulus is presented and they're programming it uh, using Python. Yeah. And it's a lot more work, but we are seeing a huge rise in the use of Python specifically hmm. in the world of research.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that there's, there's such good reason for that in that you know, enabling a researcher to have absolute control over every little element, every aspect or detail, um, can be really empowering. And we can get at really interesting ideas, but at the same time, you know, if you've got a department full of 50 people all writing their own code to try and do something, then that can put a lot of pressure on you know, when something breaks, which it inevitably will at least when I do it. (laughs) You know, when you you get to that stage, that puts a lot of pressure on your technologists to come in and and be able to provide effective support when they have to go back and figure out exactly how you've gotten to this stage.
2: I think the beauty uh, when we were talking about like the changes across the years within research and and how your jobs have basically changed from being in stores and like working like almost like a mechanic on these things, uh, I think right now we always think of IT as like specifically uh, internet-based, like computer-based work. Like that's how we're kind of, accustomed that's, that's, to thinking, we're custom thinking of technology as something that has to relate to computers or like the most it needs most to be plugged in stuff, in some way. In. Yeah. but te- the truth is technology is the wheel right like yeah. paper is technology these are things yeah. that you guys work on that yeah, watches are technology exactly, exactly. Yeah. these are all things that you guys have to know as an it person uh, an information technologist you need to know this stuff to help others which is like basically you need to be a jack of all trades when it comes to technology
1: IT generalist is the <laughs> term used a lot on by HR. Yeah, yeah I love yeah, it. Because yeah.
2: it's, it's, so, it's so true though, right? Because you guys have had to adapt in your, like as an information technologist, imagine, I couldn't imagine going from, you know, working with pen and paper and doing all these like, really almost like a mechanics job on fixing these machines and then going to internet-based, fixing emails, fixing software, programming, and also continuing to do those kind of management of the other technologies at the same time. Uh, huge learning curve, I'd imagine.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first saw a job description that was titled IT Generalist, and it was a job posting in UBCO. And I saw that and thought they get it. Yeah. Like mm. that's it, finally.
2: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I completely see that because I mean, the, the, reiterating the fact, like, yeah, you did help us with our mics. That's probably not something you're used to doing, <laughs> uh, and we, we just went to you immediately because yeah. we're like, yeah. we don't know what to do. Who who would know this? Yeah. Oh, Matt would. Matt yeah. would know. And then within ten minutes, we had everything up and running. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> Matt, let's talk about the role that you play in research and what you, what you basically came on to talk about today with us. Uh, you're going to talk a little bit about general research computing. And so define general research computing for us and let's talk about it.
1: (laughs) So general research computing is not some, is not a term that's probably that commonly used. It's basically not desktop computing and it's not high performance computing. (laughs) That's how it's seen outside. From the folks that don't support it, you know, mm. that might mm-hmm. still have a hand in IT planning and IT strategy, uh, but they don't really get a sense of what the needs, individual computing needs. Sure. So when you say desktop computing are, and high performance computing, uh,
2: what what are the two differences?
1: No, but, great great point. Yeah, uh, desktop computing is my printer isn't working. Right. Uh, my computer won't boot. I can't log in. My hard drive died. <laughs> That's desktop computing. Right. It, the nature is that.
2: That is what I see. Like, that I think that is in a lot of people's heads what IT does. Mm. Is, That specifically, desktop like the desktop computing, fixing, troubleshooting those kind of things. I spilled tea on my laptop.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and those type of requests are on the decline. Oh, basically because hardware and software is getting, to some extent, better, Mm. and the strategies for managing it are becoming better. Software is becoming more turnkey, more simplified. It's empowering users how to troubleshoot it themselves. Mm. Previously, you know, ten years from now, if you opened up Microsoft Word and you got an error, people would just call IT. Yeah. Now, most people Google it first. Mm-hmm. They see if there's any known issues. Heck, we know that a lot of uh, researchers will uh, go online, Google a problem, and then start deleting registry entries right away <laughs> just to solve a problem themselves. You know, there, there isn't this fear of how the computer works anymore. Right. And that is really lessening the demand for desktop computing services. Okay, so
2: what is high performance computing?
1: High performance computing services are computers that are the size of this floor. (laughs) (laughs) And and there's a a couple of them on on campus. Um, Compute Canada are a great organization that are funded by the Canadian government to provide high performance computing services across Canada. And basically what they do is they build data centers. They build these large data centers and then they asked for help from the individual universities to help shape how these data centers are being built, how they're going to be managed, and what their purpose is going to be. And Compute Canada was founded, but then they realized, hey, you know, each province behaves a little bit differently. The way they structure their higher ed is a little bit differently. So they created these provincial in some cases, regional in others, uh, subgroups of Compute Canada. Ours is WestGrid, which is the Western C- Canada mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. high-performance computing group. And basically, they use the funding from Compute Canada to build these large data centers and offer high computing resources to any researchers in BC. And what these high-performance computing resources are, you know, what uh, they do, yeah, yeah, what (laughs) what they do is it's basically, uh, you know, it's defined by the people who are offering the service, but it's mostly what the, you know, the buzzword these days is big data. Yeah. So it's this large infrastructure, high-performance storage. You load your data in there. You learn some programming language that you can run right on what they call the head node, which is just where you log into, and you run a script that then spins up, uh, you know, the amount of CPUs. RAM mm-hmm. and basically gets the processes going right, right. Uh, for so what work you want to accomplish. Pe- like, massive
2: hardware that can handle that kind of computing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The you most common use on
1: campus, like if we look at the large, you know, the HPC units, that's what they call high performance computing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they generally call them HPCs right. for short. Uh, if we look at the type of work that's being done on them, and you can look, it's quite transparent. When you log into any Westgrid service, uh, you can look at all the existing processes. And the most common uh, use is models. So you have folks that are building models of whole solar systems mm. on these HPC units. Wow! And they're you know simulating black holes essentially, yeah. and they need you know 5,000 cores minimum <laughs> to be able to do that.
0: And, and your regular like your computer quad core has four cores <laughs> usually yep yeah absolutely yeah, so. four
1: cores and you know eight gigs of ram 16 gigs of ram if you got real fancy maybe you have 32 Ooh, and yeah, then yeah, yeah you feel like the big man on campus yeah. <laughs> um, but but these large units you know have thousands of, of gigs of ram yeah, yeah and uh yeah and you know the compute canada and westgrid they offer ways for us to all share that infrastructure and they have what's called um, RACs, which are resource allocation competitions. Mm-hmm. And it's basically like a grant. So you write a grant proposal for why you need these resources, and you submit it to Westgrid, and then they there review it, it, and then they say, hey, yeah, we're, we're gonna give you this, we're gonna give you a portion of what you asked for, et cetera. Yeah. And then when you log in, you don't have to wait. You have all those resources available for you. Mm. If you don't have uh, a resource, you know, resources haven't, like they haven't been allocated to you through an RAC, then you go into the queue and they have an algorithm to basically say, okay, this guy's asking for this much and he asked for it this often and we're gonna let him run it at this time. (laughs) And sometimes it can take up to two weeks for your um, script to run. Right,
0: that's insane. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking back to uh, Drake when we were taking uh, regression and we were running running very simple little models uh, where we had to um, estimate from missing data and do all this stuff, and and running a script and running you know ten thousand iterations of it would take fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. and so to think like okay we're 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 upping the computer capacity by a thousand fold, and then we're also you know even that is still gonna take two weeks to do or whatever right like that's that's an insane
2: I think the fun, to me that stresses me out because <laughs> I think of how often I make mistakes in my code <laughs> when I'm running things and then having to wait two weeks to realize I fucked up my code <laughs> would be really really tilting <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: that's why they they generally like if you go to these like WestGrid, they offer these computing boot camps or yeah. computing computer school mm. uh, where you go to and they, what they tell you they try to get you to figure out a way that you can run it locally right. on your own computer first at least with test it, to uh, some, with some degree iterations. to kind of test it before sending it off and seeing whether it's going to pass or fail. That makes more sense, yeah. (laughs) Um, That said, it can sometimes be hard. You know, that takes almost the work of a computer scientist. And if you're doing psychology research, you generally, you know, you know enough to get into trouble. You know enough (laughs) to, to run your you know, to, to run these algorithms to get to, to process the data in the way that you want them, but uh, you know, if you're really skilled, maybe you've written it from scratch. A lot of the time, we see folks borrowing code from Stack Overflow from different websites online, uh, trying to accomplish what, what they're looking to do. And that that's a valid point you brought up because that's how the queuing system evaluates whether or not your script is going to run. Oh, really? As well, yeah, because if, code, if yeah. yeah, if your code isn't written well, you can have. Uh, le- you know, you can have errors basically uh, right. that affect the folks that are running those systems. And they're like, hey, you know. <laughs>
0: Clean this shit up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I, I, I do say that's less of a problem now. For the sure. systems are being built to sort of plan for that. And yeah. configuration automation, which is basically like robots that live in the system, yeah. are able to identify, hey, there's some bad code running over here. Let's stop that before it gets out of hand. Right, and, right, it, right. And, then, and they do that reliably now. Yeah. Whereas if you talk to a lot of researchers that were using West Grid like eight years ago, they have copies of emails from angry system administrators, (laughs) uh, telling them to to clean up their code. That's hilarious. That's
2: great. Cool. So now we know what those, so what it was desktop computing and high performance computing is, and you brought up general computing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, General research, general research, computing
1: general research, computing is anything that researchers use to empower, drive, manage their research that, isn't easily provided by a centrally offered platform
0: <laughs> okay sure sure yeah.
1: yeah so this can be anything from eye tracking software to custom eg builds to ready to go turnkey eg builds any type of psychophys hardware yeah it can even be a- av not all audiovisual setups are straightforward mm-hmm. let's say you want av you just want a projector in in your lab for a meeting room and You know, you want a mic and you want a speaker so that when you play videos on the projector, you can hear it back. That's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. It can be complex depending on whether you want a control panel there on the wall. But the type of AV requests we see come from researchers are more around, Hey, we need a room that is flexible that we want to run baby research, we want to present stimulus on a large flat screen, we want them to sit here, we want an eye-tracking unit to sit here, we want it to tie back to Toby Studio, we also want to run E-Prime on that same computer, and we want it to send triggers to Ardenis, which is the system that we're using to capture EEG, and we want it to sync using this box so that we're able to collect triggers automatically. That's (laughs) general research computing.
0: All the nitty-gritty, pardon my language, but all the nitty-gritty shit that just has to happen in order for the research to happen. Like, I mean... I, those are so fundamentally linked. It's, it's hard as somebody who's in the research to to distinguish between. I, I feel like a lot of my time spent researching is spent figuring out some of that those issues. So it's nice to know that somebody else out there is thinking about it.
1: Yeah, and recently our department have really tasked the IT group here to start providing general research computing services. So you have research labs that traditionally maybe used methods of collecting data that were quite laborious that are now turning to technology to speed that up. You also have research that could never be accomplished that can now be accomplished because of technology. For example, a lot of our health psychology labs uh, run studies where they provide participants with iPads or phones, and it runs some sort of, you know, software that collects metrics based on you know kind of fitbit yeah, style biomarkers yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. then maybe every so often rings you know rings an alarm and prompts them to fill out a survey about like what they're doing right now because we noticed their heart rate spiked mm. i don't know that this exact yeah, sure. scenario it's, it's pretty accurate actually yeah okay, right on yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and that never used to be feasible yeah and research labs are generally more than capable of setting the same, these things up themselves however sometimes there's questions that might be hard to solve on their own. That because we're so immersed in technology, and most technologists, folks working in IT, have you know even a hobby level interest yeah. in technology, and have always had it. We can answer that question quite easily. Yeah. Whereas it might take months. a researcher, yeah, like <laughs> days, months, weeks, yeah. months to figure out networking with other researchers.
2: Yeah, that also don't know what the hell to do with that. They're yeah. like, maybe you yeah. could do this, maybe you could do that. When they could be talking to you guys, who, like you said. You're immersed in this and you know, the technology uh, or you might not know it, but you have a hobby that's a hobby or an interest of yours and you want to find the answer to it.
1: We often know those semi esoteric keywords that are necessary for finding the answer yeah. basically. And what our group is trying to do, and this is part of the directive that our director of administration department had, have, have passed along to us is to document these things. Mm-hmm. So we have psych air which is our kind of our intranet. It's basically like a internal wiki that's password protected that only the department can access. Currently it's used for administrative forms. So it's where you go to fill out your <laughs> reimbursement forms or, you know, request access to a room. Yeah. What we're moving to using it for is to providing as much information as possible around these resources so that it doesn't necessarily rely on someone contacting us and asking us that question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to try to have it there, have it readily available. And that's why I feel like good documentation is the lifeblood of the farm <laughs> per se. <laughs> well,
2: it's like the next step to after Googling it, yeah. right? So you can go to this in- internet where you can actually see this wiki. That's about like common
1: issues or, or, you know, FAQs. Yeah. Um, and we don't want to duplicate content that's already out there. Yeah, of course.
2: No. Yeah. This is like very niche specific things that you guys have addressed within your work that you could allow other people to kind of access and see, right?
1: Absolutely. So even if it's as simple as listing what digital research infrastructure platforms are out there, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you know, you can click and say, okay, what, uh, you know, if I'm programming Python, we can have a whole Python section and yeah. there's tools like what EBC offers. Maybe there's coding schools that are run every summer around Python, et cetera. Mm-hmm. We want to list all that stuff there. We also want to list known issues that we've seen labs run into with certain technologies. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. so we feel documentation is actually a huge part of general research computing support, mm-hmm. and as technology progresses, the demand for that documentation will wane, but it's it's still really important. Um, yeah, I think mean,
2: that's also a big part of it is the people that are doing the research, how savvy they are with technology. I mean, I imagine, or it seems like there's a bigger push and a lot more uh, kids growing up now are... are immersed in the technology so they're actually more knowledgeable than i am when it comes to technology or people that are older than i am um but i think that's being like kind of positive or being optimistic about us actually you know being good with technology or the kids now being
1: it's interesting there's it's a common topic that's called the myth of the digital native because we were you know growing up i got to witness kind of the birth of the internet yeah we got our first dial-up connection in 1994. (laughs) Uh, You know, Napster, I remember the day that Napster got launched and uh, we were, you know, downloading music files without thinking of the consequences (laughs) and, uh, you know, playing them on a speaker. We'd have a, a stereo cable plugged into that speaker and have that plugged into a tape player and we would make compilation tapes to bring to school to share with everyone else. Like you have, so you have like the, this very advanced file sharing technology, but then the way that we're actually using it is is still very analog.
0: Well, uh, you know, and I think that's that's so so key is that we move forward, but there are always people who have, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, you know, gotten off at the last stop, and they, you know, they're trying to interact with these newer technologies and leverage them in a way that makes sense to them with all their previous knowledge and experience, and so you have this sort of this weird. Building, layering almost of, of technological usage.
1: And when technology was first introduced to me, like when computers were first introduced, it was command line. It's either uh, MS DOS or OS2. And these are very primitive operating systems that took quite a bit of learning to even start to use.
2: Right, these are before Windows. (laughs) Oh yeah, this is, yeah, this is... uh, (laughs) This is the earliest of earliest. I remember
1: when Windows 95 came out, it was such a big deal. (laughs) It was like, wow, I can watch movies on a computer. Like that was, it was so fantastic. Yeah. And then Windows 98 came out and there was this great Weezer video that was packaged with it. And that really blew my mind. (laughs) Um, But I feel that because I got to witness, you know, my generation got to witness how difficult it was to run something. We almost have... Well, we do have more of a hands-on experience with what goes on in the background because mm-hmm. that DOS, you know, that code that's running in the background—that's still how computers work. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's just prettier. Yeah,
1: everyone's <laughs> just using graphical user interfaces, GUIs, yeah, uh, to access it these days. Yeah, and
0: Lip- lipstick on a pig.
1: Yeah, and they don't really understand the, you know, the the underlying mechanisms. Workings. Yeah,
0: yeah, the yeah. yeah, the yeah the underlying. The underlying working of of the whole operation,
1: which is great. They shouldn't have to, they should. Yeah. 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 And the the, the
2: general user shouldn't have to worry about that. Right.
1: And we, so we see folks that, you know, can develop crazy apps that are beyond anything I could comprehend building, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, when certain things break, they don't really have an understanding of what that error code means. So there's still, I would say that's what the myth of the digital native encompasses, is that we had this idea that the generation that grew up with computers were just gonna understand how it all works. And that's not how things work. Mm, Uh, Nobody can know everything. I think that, yeah, that that reminds me of something when I first came over here to work in psychology. And like, even when I first came in to UBC to start working with researchers, I had a lot of colleagues in IT, uh, say, oh, wow, well, that job's going to be easy because those guys know exactly what they're doing. You're basically just going to be hand-holding because scientists are geniuses <laughs> and they probably just support their own stuff. And Not true. <laughs> it, it, it can be true. You know, there's isolated cases. There's, there's folks that have a hobby passion for yeah. computer science and maybe they're focusing on psychology research or earth and ocean science research. Um, but ultimately, I feel unless... The repair and functioning of computers becomes more automated you're always going to need someone to come in and help folks use it yeah, yeah.
2: i mean as researchers and as for me as a researcher i didn't go in thinking i need to know how to code uh, but now i know that's abundantly yeah. <laughs> a big part of my job right is to, to, to learn that
1: so it's interesting you brought that up because it's a problem that i hear or it's a an issue that i know a lot of pi principal investigators are facing is they have these really great bright grad student that they want to hire they want to bring into their lab and that grad student writes really well they have a great eye for research they know exactly what
2: they want to investigate what they, they want, want to investigate science, yeah.
1: they're seeing something that nobody else sees mm-hmm. but they don't have any computer science skills do you pass over that grad student just because they don't have this you know this skill that's a complete other area of research
2: yeah you shouldn't have to like exactly, that's, that's that, and for me, that's the funniest thing because I'm not good at coding, but I've I've been banging my head against the wall for the last two years figuring out how to run run models and things like that on R, which is a program that uses coding, yeah, uh, basic coding. Uh, but yeah, I, I see it, and I think that that's why it's. it's I'm happy we have you on today, is because we shouldn't be expected to do everything. We shouldn't be expected to be computer scientists first, then psychologists or psych, psych researchers second. Right? It should be kind of together there should be some sort of like harmony between these things but that's not the no the and, and
1: that's why my team really advocates for yeah. general research computing support yeah. and computing you know research computing support of, of any flavor
0: yeah. all right with that we'll call it a wrap on the first half of the episode uh enjoy the brain break and we'll be back on the other side to uh chat about some mis- misconceptions and uh, a couple of cool stories i think so anyways uh until then cheers
1: Hey, so what it is it again? Hi, I'm Matt Smith. <laughs> yeah, <that's it>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt. Welcome back to my episode of Brain Buzz here with Kyle and Drake. There you go. Perfect. One take. Easy. <laughs> Single shot. Well, cheers. Okay, right, cool.
2: All right. Thanks, Matt, for, for introducing us. Yep. Yep. That was the beauty beautiful first, first try. Amazing. Thank um, you. And my, fo- my friggin' laptop died, so all my questions are not on there. He, um, Matt's,
0: so- Matt's going to be replacing me because yeah. as long as he doesn't know the mic's on, it's just a single-take <laughs> kind of guy.
2: He's got to hide the mic in the <laughs> room Ceiling mics. Yeah, yeah, anyway, ceiling yeah. mics. Just yeah. put it on the lapel and he'll forget about it. Yeah, $2,000 yeah.
1: $2, $2, programmable direction ceiling mics. That's that's what we're talking about. I'm that's, into it. Yeah, you can yeah. set that up. I'll put a ticket in okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, get a, yeah, we'll get an honorarium from the department. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Matt, basically this last half, I, there's a lot of stuff with IT I, that in pop culture and a lot of popular media and just people's general conceptions of what IT is. So, I kind of wanted to... Get some stories from you. Get some opinions from you on what what you really do. So, we talked about email as being a big part of what you do on a day-to-day basis. What are the most common complaints that you get from people that you're doing like serving, like working
1: with in IT? Oh boy, uh, we get yeah, like complaints about technology. Yeah, about
2: technology. What's like the what are the biggest problems for researchers or yeah. just people that you're working with? What are the problem areas? Where are people really struggling?
1: Printing. <laughs> yeah I believe yeah that. Print, printing an email uh yeah those we, are
2: the main two like culprits I eh?
1: yeah those are the main two culprits and unfortunately they're not that interesting um
2: <laughs> well they piss me off beyond <laughs> belief so yeah. i completely understand okay i have a follow-up question then so what um <laughs> there's idea this this might be a myth and i kind of want you to either dispel it or just tell it how it is okay um give it to us straight yeah give it to us straight IT people have how much how much can it people see (laughs) when it comes to the people they're working with when they have their personal laptops and things like that what is something that you is a part of what you guys have to see or are able to see gotcha you know what i mean like can you see all my like all my conversations all stuff on like all the software that i have on my computer What, what what can you see from people when you're working with their stuff. Which it's websites not, you visit, Not like you're you're prying on, I'm not saying like you're prying or anything like that, but it's available information from the people you're
1: working with. Readily available? Readily available. Yeah, I would say readily available. Like <laughs> Things that are like
2: that will naturally pop up without you trying to find yeah,
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. So I can say right off the bat, email can't see it. And UBC has set it up in such a way that uh, that's just the way it is. And most email providers have it set up that way. Email it tends to be the most private form of data storage. Okay that's good to know yeah
2: what what do you so i mean and this 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 is probably going to vary significantly across you know uh what i.t department you're talking about right so this is specifically within psychology and, and the research area that we're in or in the i.t department you're in uh talking about businesses and things like that like i.t departments in bigger corporations what do you know that other IT departments might might have access to or that you might have access yeah, to? Yeah, email. Just, just email. So, <laughs> so they, yeah. they're the ones where they can break into the email. Yeah, like and
1: see, UBC, have to UBC does things pretty great with regards to information security. We have a great, you know, we have a couple of great folks that work in information security here right. in IT. Larry Carson's been here forever uh, and he controls a lot of the direction that we head in with regards to information security practices and policies. Mm. And thankfully, the way our email system works is yeah quite secure the only emails that i can access readily here are the general email accounts so let's say uh you know uh, bob's lab at psych.ubc.ca or the you know the motion lab at psych.ubc.ca those email accounts if i wanted to i could basically go in and add myself Uh, as a viewer of that group right but Mm -hmm. that's a special category of email account to monitor yeah Yeah, personal email accounts i have no ability to do that whatsoever
2: Mm -hmm. and where other businesses like other businesses that have you know work emails, the IT departments might actually be expected to manage those and monitor them. Is that correct, uh, or in a sense, not really? Yeah, I don't,
1: I think it would be a, a very volatile, toxic workplace if It'd they be, were- To breach that situation. Yeah, security, if right. that was, you know, practice. However, without yeah. that oversight, it's set up so it could happen. Right,
2: right, yeah. And I think that's the misconception is that IT people are going through your emails, right? Like they're not, no. they shouldn't be, for, they, like, they shouldn't be is what,
1: Yeah, they. and they, most
2: of the time they might not actually have access to it.
1: Unless they're a sociopath or psychopath, <laughs> they're not going to. We're lucky to be part of an institution that sets it up so that yeah. isn't even a possibility, even yeah, if yeah. you do have a, They
2: respect security and, and confidentiality.
1: Very and much like so. And it's just a policy. So yeah. when they set up the servers, they often have it set up so Uh, Even to change this setting, you need two people to authenticate or the person that has access to the password to change that setting doesn't even have access to the system. Mm -hmm. So basically it needs at least two people in any given moment to, you know, enable access to that. And we see that happen occasionally due to court orders. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone that did something illegal with their email account, then the office of the CIO receives an order to grant access to that email account, they contact you know, whoever's sitting in their office with the key, they meet up with the system administrator, and together they access that email. and transfer them. So that's that's how it has to be done here. Yeah, that makes sense. I think
0: I think that's great, Matt. What is the most? You talked about the most mundane tickets you get. What are the? What is the most interesting ticket that you've ever received? And by ticket, I mean um, sorry. I guess I should define that. A ticket being a request for assistance.
1: Yeah, I think the the ticket. If I can elaborate on that a little bit, sure. taking us outside of the the you yeah. know the fun <laughs> zone a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but a ticket is any requests that we get in via email. We have a system set up that's provided centrally by UBC Mm -hmm. that automatically generates a ticket out of any email that comes in to our support address. And then we have a web-based interface that allows us to assign those emails essentially to certain people. We can prioritize them. Mm -hmm. It it really provides just a great view for us to to look at Mm -hmm. what is going on and what we're
2: Needed for All right. Pretty much what I do with my emails, but to a much more organized degree where I'm just like, I'll come back to that one, just flag it and I'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> but you actually assign it to individuals that are more appropriately, like that might be more effective at uh, addressing that issue or, you know, prioritizing. Cause you guys probably get, I mean, we'll talk about it. Uh, actually, we might as well ask right yeah. now. How many tickets do you get on a, you know, on a daily basis? And what is the kind of influx that you guys are seeing?
1: It really depends on the time of year. We see anywhere from 50 to hundred per week.
0: You, like departmental
1: tickets. Yeah, that's okay. just our unit. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah elsewhere on campus, uh, I think UBC has around 8,500 open tickets at any given time.
0: <laughs> that's an insane number to me. Yeah.
1: So going back to your original question yeah, around yeah. like the most interesting mm-hmm. tickets that we get, it's pretty hard to define like one <laughs> sure. single most interesting one. Like the most interesting ones are the ones that we are you know, interested in solving. So we That's have uh, my personal like favorite tickets are uh, AV, like audio visual complex data collection setups that somebody's gone in, unplugged a bunch of stuff. And then <laughs> I have to go down and basically manually, you know, uh, figure out what the missing pieces are. Yeah. So kind of like problem solving and say, okay, this device is sitting here on its own. What was it meant to do? <laughs> you know, and and being able to sort of time myself and how long it takes me mm. uh, to figure out what the design <laughs> yeah. should be. be a uh, great puzzle. Yeah, and then afterwards document it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, exactly print it out for the lab, send a digital copy to the lab, yeah. PDF and a Word document, oh, so that not only is there a final copy, but it's also editable. Yeah.
2: And Okay, Matt, do you, when the Wi-Fi goes down at your house, do you get upset or do you get excited? <laughs> I'm confused here. <laughs>
1: There's only one emotion for me, and it's yeah. straight anger. <laughs> It's a little bit of both. <laughs> uh, I I'm surprisingly low maintenance at home with certain things. Basically, my what my focus is uh, moves around from month to month. Uh, I just use whatever, like I, I use Telus mm-hmm. for my uh, internet providing, you know, my ISP, yeah. and I just use whatever they give me because you know I troubleshoot that stuff so much at work. When I yeah. come home, I just want it to work. Yeah, that's why here at work, like my my passion for well, I shouldn't really say my passion is but uh, with regards to this, but my favorite operating system is and always has been um, GNU slash Linux, mm. uh, which is, uh, you know, it can uh, be quite complex to maintain. And that's what I use at work for my primary desktop most mm. of the time. But when I go home, I'm all Mac yeah. because I have the Unix, you know, I have a Unix command line. I have a Unix backend, which is very similar to Linux. Uh, however, it's stable and I have AppleCare. And if my computer breaks, I don't bother looking at it. I just, I always have two. So I have a backup one and I just bring mine into the Apple store and and I don't like fixing it. That said, I do have uh, servers at home Mm -hmm. and I have, you know, different projects with uh, uh, Raspberry Pis uh, and Arduinos that I work on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it changes from month to month, basically.
2: But you don't want to essentially bring your IT work home all the time you bring your hobbies home and what you're interested in but you don't want to be dealing with like troubleshooting things when you could just give it to somebody that has the
1: I wonder how much of that, though, is I don't want to drive my wife crazy. <laughs> and, <laughs> Perfectly reasonable. You know, we've been together 14 years, so she's really <laughs> had a heavy, heavy influence there. She really helps me focus on, yeah. on what's necessary. And as such, I, we have really great data storage. Yeah. I have my own server. I have a couple of them. Uh, there's, you know, I have my local one at home. I have one that I use in the cloud to back everything up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, have a fancy media server mm-hmm. that we build. It's sort of like we have our own version of Netflix. We have a web-based interface that catalogs all our movies. My wife used to work in film. That's a common hobby of ours. is okay. Is film and, and cinema. We have a pretty large, well curated uh, collection of movies. Around nine hundred and fifty wow. last time I checked. Wow!
2: Before we wrap up, you had some cool facts that you want that that we I, we need to talk about because yes, hilarious. Absolutely. Um, show, tell us a little bit of some cool facts from so, IT. So, so this is going back to tickets. So that's
1: yeah. why for me the most interesting tickets are just the ones that. Um, <laughs> are the, almost the simplest to solve. Yeah. So we get 10 tickets per year pretty consistently. Some years it's 12, some years it's eight. But yeah, since the entire time I've been here where uh, we get requests where the solution is just something not being plugged in. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, four times out of 10, uh, that's the network. Like they can't connect to the internet and we find out that the... You know, the network cable is just unplugged or that the computer or device won't turn on and it's just physically not plugged in <laughs> to the internet or uh, a couple of times we get that the monitor won't turn on and the cable is just unplugged from the computer
2: i think the beauty of that is that it's kind of reinforcing this like this issue that people have with I- the, the it service that they get with you know their cell providers or whatever the computer providers and they're asking you know have you tried plugging it in or unplugging it and plugging it back yeah. in and t- why the fact that, that 10, 10, 10 people a year literally <laughs> need to plug something in is reinforcing the fact that sometimes that isn't the solution, the most simple solution that they need to ask because there are some people that won't do it. It's crazy. That's an insane number.
1: I can't think of an interesting ticket now. since Yeah. We're yeah, just yeah. A little bit farther on. Yeah. Um, we once had a professor that wanted to verify if some data had been tampered with. So basically they had uh, some tables that were part of a thesis that they were pretty sure, that you know, that it was a questionable thesis in general, they were finding some problems with it, and they felt that uh, a couple of the figures contained in the thesis were altered. Mm. And they had a publisher indicate that they didn't want to accept it because their scans showed that a couple of the figures were altered, but they didn't really want to provide more information than that. So Mm. we were tasked with figuring out if we could see any sort of tampering with the figures
2: interesting altered in what way like what was the like conclusion like what was the through image manipulation so So basically they have straight up image manipulation. yeah they're
1: trying to show that this instrument actually showed this on the screen oh and actually they had gone in in photoshop and played around with what it showed right okay
2: okay I see what you mean in my head i was thinking of like graphs or something and then like just changing the numbers but it's literally a picture that may have been manipulated yeah photoshopped
1: yeah and unfortunately we we could see some evidence of it being tampered with but we didn't feel that we were in the position legally to really sure you know make a statement on that so we just replied back that yeah it looks suspect um however that's off the record yeah uh, on the record uh, unfortunately it's we not can't something say that, that our either. group can help with but that was a pretty interesting one it's the first time that's ever been presented to me wow. and so far the only time I think that and is. uh yeah I dramatic thought was, i thought that was kind of neat yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. cool
2: that is really that's, that's unique i think that that's First off, cool. I don't know how you guys figured that out, but that's really cool. I love, I don't know if you ever watched the show, the IT crowd, but that does not do a good job of expressing how you guys work. Um, That's reinforcing that lazy, uh, actually, we didn't even talk about that, have we? uh, Your misconception. Let's talk about your misconception because this, I think this is kind of reinforced by the IT crowd and like the conception that, yeah, you're just there trying to avoid doing work. You're sitting in a closet and you're just like, please don't send me an email. Cause I'm not going to respond. to it."
1: <laughs> I love the it crowd. I was really, when it, when it was first coming out, I caught it when it was in its second season and I continued to follow it, like week for week as it was being released in the UK. And for me, it represented that misconception and that's what was funny about it. Yeah. Like, mm. But at the same time, there are parts of it that <laughs> are true. It, it's kind of, it, it's tip those jokes and that whole show is what not to do. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, as with life, you see people doing things wrong all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there is, uh, especially in higher ed, a lot of folks say, Oh, you work university IT, all oh, that must be easy. Oh uh, yeah, you, you get to go home on time every day. Uh, <laughs> it must be nice to have weekends off. Because in, in IT it's quite typical that you work late hours. Sometimes you're asked to maintain uh, you know servers and services on the weekend, mm-hmm. even at midnight sometimes. And we do exactly that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In fact that's one of the most important aspects of research support, in my mind, is getting out of the way of researchers in yeah. order to, to support that. So you know, when we do major migrations, even if we're facilitating uh, email migrations that the other groups on campus are responsible for, we always try to have it so that it's orchestrated uh, off hours yeah. and it doesn't impact people. So those misconceptions aren't true. Um, however, you do have instances of it. And every single time, it's just lack of direction. It's that you have really smart people that are asked to show up and sit in this room and just help with technology. Whatever comes up, just help. You know, and if they have a vision in their mind for what should be done in that unit, that's awesome. And they're going to do well and people are going to be happy, but not everyone should have to come up with their own vision or have that skill set. You have some really highly intelligent folks that have focused on being able to solve IT related issues of their field really quickly, but they might not. You know, have the the bigger picture. They mm-hmm. need someone to provide them that direction, right. and around that ties back to the first part of the podcast, which right. is really mandating for that vision mm-hmm. uh, on campus.
0: One one quick one that I do want to ask you because it was it's on the sheet, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I've never received a spam email to my UBC email address. How many spam emails or attacks uh, do you get? You know, each month or each year, millions. Millions. I
1: believe it's close to eight million, That's... if I'm, uh, yeah, if if my memory is serving me correctly, and yeah, we just have phenomenal hardware.
2: That's crazy. We That's... talked a little bit with Chris Rowell on our previous episode about the idea of making emails uh, sender like you had to basically attach a price with each each email you send, uh, and that, <laughs> how that would ruin spammers. Yeah. I think that'd be I, th- I think it's brilliant. I think I still love that idea. And I'm sure you probably would endorse that idea as well
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, because of the amount you have to deal with, obviously. Yeah. And that's but, not just like that. I feel that number doesn't even do it justice because we are constantly looking at, um, you know, servers all over the world that are just generating spam and then just straight up blocking them. So mm. being like, block this IP, block that IP. Yeah. The amount that we're blocking with that number is just what's- What's going through- What's going through not that previously blocked, yeah. yeah, that we actually need hardware on the border like that's filtering all the email traffic that's coming in. And then, yeah, with that number, even our own systems here uh, within psychology, we, we really limit what ports, you know, are open to the world. So what um, parts of your computer, like parts of your internet uh, are, are allowed to have unrequested incoming traffic. Mm. So basically when you're browsing the web, you're requesting that content and then someone's replying to it, whether it's the server you're visiting or someone you're chatting to, et cetera, you're, um, our network here on campus is keeping track of that. It's saying, oh, he, Drake requested that website. We're going to allow right. uh, the answer to that request mm-hmm. to come back in. Mm. But you have unsolicited requests, which we mm. want to enable for certain things, such as like our, our file servers or our email system. You know, when someone just wants to say, hey, you're a server I need to send data to, we want it to say yes. However, um, we do get a lot of bad requests to those <laughs> servers, and it's, it's about the same numbers as the as the phishing attempts. We get about 9 million and, yeah, bunk, like malicious uh, server requests um, Yeah, per month that never make it past the firewall. But we have a firewall that's just constantly rejecting <laughs> that's data. That's, that's
0: a crazy number to me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm happy I'm not receiving those, those emails. <laughs> Matt, uh, just the last thing I'll ask you, you can just confirm this. I know it's not... You know, I know this is not true, but can we just confirm that it's called the Chief Spam Office, the office that has to go through? Yeah. No, it is not called the Chief Spam Office. Um. Uh, anyways, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. It's been a blast. Uh, we've had a really good time. I've learned a lot, uh, just about everything. And and again, um, you know, I'm I am appreciative of of all the work that you and and the wonderful IT team here do. Uh, and none of the work that we do could really happen without it. So. Uh, on behalf of everybody, I'll, I will say thank you to you yeah. and and everybody else involved. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, give us a like or two on whatever uh, audio platform you found it on, whether that be Spotify, uh, iTunes, or Google Play. Uh, leave us a star. Leave us a review. Uh, better yet, tell a friend. Tell somebody else who might enjoy listening. Um, that's always a good way to um, start a conversation about the show. Why not? Uh, tell them something that you heard Matt say on today's episode <laughs> that you thought was particularly cool. Uh, anyways... Um, yeah Matt how can how can our listeners reach you uh,
1: yeah you can reach me at matthew.smith at ubc.ca
0: <laughs> perfect and we'll have that up in your bio um, any
1: shout outs or yeah. anything you want
0: to promote?
1: Two shout-outs. Firstly, to my wife. She organizes what is this chaos. <laughs> Secondly, to the IT team that we have here, led by Linda. I wouldn't be able to be here in this room if it wasn't for her ability to keep the show on the road.
2: <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we appreciate both of them for keeping you stable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>